you would keep your Bibles open to Proverbs chapter 7. We want to continue in our study and work all the way through this chapter again this morning as we have in the, in the past. This is a powerful chapter, an amazing chapter, and uh, tremendous in its insight for us, which is really what, uh, what this is all about. Because the truth is that uh, temptation comes to us in a variety of ways. I'm going to give you three of those right now, just quickly by means of introduction to this. Uh, the first is that it can come as a direct temptation. And a great example of that would be Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. You'll remember when he was out there, he had been fasting for 40 days, and the devil came to him, and it is that the devil came looking for him, he didn't go looking for the devil. It was at a moment of consecration, a moment of uh, self-denial. And the record tells us that the devil left him because he didn't find anything in him. There was nothing in Christ that resonated with where he was being pulled, although that doesn't mean it wasn't a real temptation or that he wasn't truly tempted. He was. Um, it was a case, however, of trying to pervert natural desires. He had these desires. Uh, naturally to be exalted to the throne again. Here he was in a, a place of uh, humility. And so the enemy comes playing off of that natural desire. He was magnifying hunger so as to get Christ to obey the enemy and step into his full identity without being obscured any longer and uh, to receive the glory that was rightly his. But it wasn't God's season yet. And so he wasn't supposed to go there. Uh, this was not the season for exaltation and receiving the kingdom that was rightfully his, and certainly not rightfully his without the pain of the cross. And there was a temptation to that. Come and get your position over all the earth without going through the pain of the cross. So there was nothing wrong in the desires in him, in himself, but in the time and the manner and the reasoning that was behind obtaining them. And we face some of those temptations. We experience those. We don't go looking for it. It comes our way, and that's a very direct assault on us. But then there's also what I'll call situational temptation, for lack of a better term. This is a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world, and the world system set up by the enemy is constantly trolling for us looking for a way to, to gain entrance, to gain control over us. Uh, you can, and I've tried this experiment uh, uh, several times, and I can prove to you that it doesn't work. You can put a piece of filet mignon on a hook, but you cannot tempt a goldfish with it. They just don't like it. It's not their stuff. But there's plenty of things that the enemy does find, and, and in the right place, for some of you, filet mignon on a hook would work. That would be very useful. Or for me, Ben and Jerry's on a hook. I'm going. All right? It's, it, it's not very hard for that. But, but this is stuff that just comes our way. And it comes situationally. It's not where we are all the time. It plays in very well with that quote from Luther that we've used a number of times in the past few weeks, that you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a hair in your net, in, uh, a nest in your hair. So, and for some of us, that's really easy. Um, you can't get much of a nest going there. But the, the temptation comes our way, and we're, it depends on the situation we're in. 
And it may present itself in a way that we never expected before. Uh, here, we're reminded of the passage in 1 Corinthians 10, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. These are the normal things that come our way. But God is faithful and he won't, will not let you to be tempted above or beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. doesn't mean the temptation ceases, but you're given the strength by the Holy Spirit to endure it, to go through it without having to yield. Uh, another good place in Scripture that brings up the same idea is in Galatians 6, where we're reminded, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. The word there has the idea that they're trapped suddenly. They weren't looking for it. It, 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 it sprang on them and they gave in at the moment. Uh, and if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, uh, being commiserating with your brother or sister in Christ because these things happen to us, and being gentle and keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then there is the category of self-generated temptation. The third case here, the problem is not as much that the temptation has come looking for us, but these are the sins that we go looking for. The temptation is coming out of our own hearts. And I'm convinced that that's actually what's going on in this passage here and why we want to be careful to take full full note of it. Um, when I was graduating from high school in uh, 1971, uh, the part of the uh, uh, Vietnam War was still on, and this was a very famous cartoon about the state of the United States. And we have met the enemy, this is Pogo, and he is us. That's what this chapter is about. It's dealing with the reality of the deceptiveness of our own hearts, or as Jeremiah 17.9 puts it, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, to be honest with you, many of us don't suspect our own hearts, but we're great at suspecting everybody else's. Especially when you're in an argument with your spouse. What is it with you? Well, the question at that moment should be, what is it with me that I'm responding to you that way? Kids, you do this with your parents. Parents, you do it with your kids. We do it all across the board. But we never suspect that there's a deception going on in our own hearts, but we're really keen that it might be going on in somebody else's. And we want to get to the root of that. Solomon knows that this is how sin works inwardly. So he's concerned that in this last of the lectures, he, in, in, this, in this particular topic, he helps him understand the deceptive nature of his own heart, and he's going to unpack for us how our own heart reasons with us and argues for sin in various ways. So this is extremely useful, and what I, what I hope no one here will do is say, boy, I wish so-and-so were here to have heard this. Because this is about you and about me and about us as fallen human beings understanding the way that sin works within our own hearts. This isn't about somebody else. 
This is about us. And that's how Solomon's approaching it with his son. I think that's what's, what's being um, approached here in this chapter. Uh, there was a 17th century British um, English bishop by the name of Joseph Butler. He has a famous sermon on uh, the temptations of David. And in the middle of it, he writes this paragraph. There is not anything relating to men and characters more surprising and unaccountable than this partiality to themselves. Hence it is that many men seem perfect strangers to their own characters. They think and reason and judge quite differently upon any matter relating to themselves from what they do in the case of others. Hence it is one hears people exposing follies which they themselves are eminent for and talking with great severity against particular vices which, if all the world be not mistaken, they themselves are notoriously guilty of. This self-ignorance and self-partiality is in all of us in different degrees. That's true. And Solomon knows this, and he's trying to deal with his son and trying to bring him past that. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on Mark, says there is no truth so little realized and believed as the desperate wickedness of the human heart. We do not want to see ourselves that way. Now, I understand some of us will say, well, if I think about that all the time, I'll be terribly depressed. If you're outside of Christ, that's absolutely true. You should be terribly depressed. The wickedness of your own heart should scare you terribly. If you're born again here today and you know Christ, you can look into that chasm without fear and without depression because of the glory of the Christ who delivers us and, as this passage shows, is on our side while we deal with temptation. I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but there are times when I have fallen into temptation and I have thought to myself uh, in the process, yeah, I've, got to, I've got to wait until this sin is over and give myself a certain period of time, maybe do some, some Protestant penance of some sort, uh, vow to read my Bible more often, uh, vow to pray better, uh, vow to do something nice for somebody who I really dislike, do some, some kind of thing, until I'm back into God's good graces and never realizing that Christ is all the time with you and saying, come on, let's move past this. I can help you. I'm not against you. You have fallen, yes, but let me help you up and move you past this. He's on your side. He doesn't abandon you when you sin. He comes alongside to help you to move to a place of victory. So as we read this passage, you just had it read for us, it's not a scene of a young man busily at work, set upon temptation when he's about his proper business. This is the picture of how temptation works inwardly and out of the deception of our own hearts. It's an unfolding, if you will, of James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Let's, let's not look outwardly first. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured 
and enticed by what? His own desire. That's the picture here. This is a very real aspect of sin. Lured and enticed by his own desire, and then when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Proverbs 7 is an exposition of those verses. And so if you tie those together, you'll have a good picture of what's going on in this passage and understand how to work through it. Now, while the setting itself, in this little scenario, this vignette that he paints for us, is one of an illicit encounter between a young man and a married woman, the features that are in it accompany every temptation. And that's what I want to point us to today so that we can get the benefit of this for ourselves. So just quickly, we'll look at a very rapid outline of the chapter. This is what I'm going to follow as we work through the passage. In verses 1 through 5, there's this exhortation to treasure God's word, his commandments. Uh, we'll come back and we'll tease that out in a second. In verses 6 through 20, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, we're going to see the elements and progression of temptation. And this, is again, is coming from the deception of our own hearts. He's, wa- he's wanting to open up your heart and let you get a sense of how your sin reasons inside of you, what that looks like. And then in 21 through 23, he's going to talk about very briefly the effects of this progression as it's carried out. And then in 24 through 27, as has been, uh, we've seen several times in these Proverbs, is an emotional plea on, for Solomon on behalf of his son. He really wants him to understand this and grasp it. So, back to the first section, an exhortation to treasure up the word. If you can see in the... Uh, graphic that I've got up there, you can see the reflection of the photographer in the eye of the person who's being photographed here. Um, that's because the word here that's used in Proverbs when he mentions, keep my commandments and live, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, in Hebrew the word apple is little man. And it comes from the idea that what you view is reflected in your eyeball. What you've got your eye focused on can be seen in the mirror. And that's exactly the idea here when he talks about God's word. Keep God's word as the thing that is most reflected in your eye, that you're focusing on, that you're keeping your eye on. Look at the way that the words work in these first uh, few verses. Um, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live... Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. You see the intensity of those words being built up over and over. Keep, keep, treasure, bind, focus on. Set these things in front of you because they disappear. The heart and the mind are like sieves when it comes to spiritual truth. And so we've got to constantly be coming back to these over and over. Uh, A little while ago, I just finished uh, a new book by Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Those of you that have read any of Johnny's books know that every book is basically the same. Uh, 
uh, which is uh, a, a blessing. John Piper says the same thing about every book that he has, that it's just the same sermon written in a different way every time that he writes a book. Always coming back to the same idea. Johnny hits on this all the time. This is a woman who broke her neck when she was a teenager, so she's totally paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. Um, and then there's all of the things that go along with that. Uh, and then later on, uh, as we found out just a couple of years ago, she went through breast cancer on top of decades of living with this. And then pain, undescribable, indescribable, and um, inexplicable pain that has immobilized her time after time. And so here's this person, while she was paralyzed uh, just a few years ago in 2006, um, they were in a, a car accident, her Wheelchair tipped over, she broke her leg, but because she's paralyzed and can't feel, she didn't even know her leg was broken till much later. She's been through all this, and she goes, there's so many mornings when I get up and say, God, I can't do this today. It's just too much. And she says, the only thing that sustains me is memorizing Scripture. Because your mind has to be full of things that the Holy Spirit can use. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak to you out of the abstract. He uses the material that you store up inside. And if you would do battle with your own sin, you need to know God's Word, to memorize it, to treasure it. And you say, I can't memorize Scripture. Everybody here, I'm going to have you memorize a Scripture right now. Are you ready? Jesus wept. Repeat that. Jesus wept. You've all just memorized a passage of Scripture. And you can memorize a passage of Scripture and meditate on it and let the Holy Spirit use that and bring it back to you at the times when you need it most. This is what Solomon's saying. So it is this idea, keep, treasure, uh, keep again, keep, bind, write, say, call. Do this with, with God's Word so that there is a means of dealing with with your own heart, because your own heart is extremely savvy and persuasive when it wants to sin. It can bring out the big guns and can convince you of anything. So, that moves us on to 6 through 20, and I want you to see the first part of this. Now, he tells us in verse 5 that this will keep you from the forbidden woman, from temptation, from sin of all kinds, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And then he opens up to us this vignette. He uses a, a very graphic description, starting in verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. I've, I've seen this, and I've seen it more than once, Solomon says, as he's talking to his son. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. That term, lacking sense, Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Proverbs says it comes from a Hebrew root that means brainless. Well, our translations are a little sweeter than brainless, but that's the idea that's here. But look at, look at the way that the words are used. This is a simple man. That's a barnyard term of having the door open in the barn so that whatever comes in goes out. That's being simple-minded. Uh, it, it traps nothing. It just lets everything pass through. I've seen among the simple. I've perceived among the used, the immature, a young man 
Somebody not fully formed, not walking in their adulthood. And as a result, they're lacking sense. They're immature. This is a a powerful reality. Now, whether your particular propensity towards sin is something like grumbling or complaining, and yes, those are sins, as the Bible says so, do you realize that you, you convince yourself you have a right to grumble and complain? That's how sin argues in the heart. You have a, a, a sin nature that would tend for some toward theft, in others toward hatred or revenge. That's one that we really can talk ourselves into pretty easily. Or rebellion against God's appointed authority. Can we say the government? Or anger or irritability or foolishness. Maybe your, your sinful tendency is toward ambition or covetousness. Or one of the ones in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Uh, sensuality, living, living by impulse, the idolatry, putting something in the place of God, sorcery, trying to manipulate God, enmity, uh, arguing with everybody I know, strife, jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Maybe that's you, but, but all of those, because they're part of our fallen nature, will try to convince us that they can have control at any given moment. And this picture of saying that this is a, a simple man, a, a youth, a young man, who's lacking sense, who's brainless, is a picture of reminding us that wherever we fall short of the image of Christ, we're not yet mature. That's what he's getting at. Every sin that we commit is a result of the fact that we are not yet conformed to the image of Christ. We're still in an immature state. He's wanting us to grow up. To grow up, as Paul will say in another place, into him. To grow up into the fullness of what we're meant to be. The truth is that the less mature we are in Christ, the more we need a set of do's and don'ts. We covered this, hinted at it just a a week or two ago. And the more mature we become, the more we're guided by the principle of what is fitting for me as a man or a woman redeemed from sin and being conformed to the image of Christ. I don't worry about a list. You have to stop and say, is this fitting? Does this match who I am? Who I'm called to be? What Christ has redeemed me for? This young man, at this point, has no verse of Scripture that he can go back to that says, Thou shalt not go out at night alone where you know temptation is. He doesn't have that verse, and neither do we. We don't have that verse for a lot of the things that we're tempted to do. But he's not thinking that way anyway. Matter of fact, he's not thinking at all. He's acting on on impulse and instinct and desire, and temptation is drawing on this immature part in us where we are still lacking in a fully developed picture of Christ. I need to know that for myself. This is what's going on in me and in you. In Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In contrast to that, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Why? 
It's not proper among the saints. It doesn't fit. And a mature person begins to see this and to live their life in that, in that principial way that, that this doesn't fit with, with who I am. So I saw among the simple, verse 7, I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Ah, what's that remind you of? It's flirting with danger. It's flirting with danger. Now, I don't know, that dad might have thought that was a clever thought at the moment. But he's playing with fire. And this is the way our sin deals with us inwardly. It moves us closer and closer and closer. We don't always just walk into sin. We inch toward it. We flirt with it. We play with it. I play with bitterness before I fully indulge in it. I toss it around in my heart, in my mind. So do you. Or before you steal something, you think about it. You work it through. What's going on in my heart? And we inch closer and closer to it until at last we enter into it. And he's saying, recognize this tendency in yourself so that you put a stop to it before it tumbles out of, out of control. This is what's happening. This young man is circling the drain. He's passing along the street near her corner and then he's taking the road to her house. Those of you that struggle with addictions of any kind, you know what it's like to have that rolling around in your mind for a long time before you finally take the step. It's how sin functions. As you get more and more used to it in your thoughts, then it becomes more and more acceptable. You can move on it. He's going to come back to that idea as we move further through this. You have a great example of this in the Old Testament with Samson in the book of Judges. You remember when he was finally connecting with Delilah and she wanted to know the source of his strength. And he was not going to let her know. But then he, she keeps saying, oh, please, you know, if you really loved me, you'd tell me. Of course, then uh, we all know how that works. And so, so anyway, he's, he's going through that, you know, just tell me what's in your heart. And he's saying, I can't do that safely. But anyway, uh, so he says, well, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, I'll be weak as any other man. And so she does that and then says, oh, the Philistines are upon you. And he stands up and he breaks them. No big deal. And then... She goes, oh, you know, you were playing with me, you were fooling with me, and so she teases him again for a while, and he finally says, okay, well, if you bind me with new ropes that have never been used, I'll be as weak as any man. So she does that, and then, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he jumps up and he breaks off the ropes, and, and, and then she goes back into her, if you loved me, you'd tell me, and, and you know, you're playing with me. And so she, he says, now he gets, he's inching a little closer. He says, well, if you weave the seven locks of my hair into a web and fasten them with a pin, I'll be as weak as any other man. And so she does that while he's asleep, and then she goes, the Philistines are upon you, and he jumps up and he breaks out and he dashes everybody to the dust again. And, and this time she really gets on him and She's weeping and crying and making a big fuss, and finally he gives in. And he says, you know, these are things I haven't even told my parents. But the bottom line is, if you shave my head, I'll be as weak as any other man. And that time she does it. And this time she yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And one of the saddest verses 
in all of Scripture is that he got up to shake himself as before and he knew not that the Spirit had left him. Stepping closer, 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 done. It's the way your sin argues with you. Delilah's just a picture of your own deceitful heart. My deceitful heart. And how it reasons with us and pleads with us to do certain things. Verse 9 then picks up, In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The deceptiveness of your own heart always works with the element of secretiveness. What can I do when no one else is watching? I don't want everybody else to see this. I want to hide this for myself. It starts deep down inside and stays there and then grows and grows and grows. We, we love this secretiveness. In John three seventeen through 21, uh, Brian read it for us in Sunday school this morning. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, is not condemned, or pardon me, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then this powerful statement. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. So I came in the house the other day. This guy's got her laptop open to her her email. And I go over to look at her email, and she quick shuts the top. And I say, there's something there she doesn't want me to see. Secretiveness. Now, she tells me it's a good thing, because it's a surprise for me. I'm waiting to find out. <laughs> we'll see what's really going on there. But this is how secretiveness works with us. So, so what is it that you're looking at or thinking about that, that if your husband or wife suddenly said, what is going on in your mind? You would have to say, I need to shut the top of that real quick. This way sin works. And the more secretive we are, the more prone to sin we are. Because we love the darkness, because our deeds are evil. And we don't want them to be found out. It's very interesting. So, in the twilight, verse 9, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and then verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him. No surprise. You go looking for sin, you find sin. It's interesting, because the word behold there means that. Lo, look, well, isn't this a shock? He's been walking toward her house, circling the drain. <gasps> There she is. Yeah, no fooling. Uh, this is the way we talk to ourselves about sin, isn't it? We assume that we're, we're not really getting that close, and then, oh, I just never expected to fall into that. Well, sure we did. We were going in that direction the whole time. But we've been convincing ourselves otherwise. This is the deceitfulness of our hearts. And, and so, behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. The idea there is the picture of attractiveness. She comes in an alluring garb. Every sin comes to you in alluring garb. It's always the way it looks. And so in 1 John 5, 2, 15 through 17, we're told, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the eyes is simply this. I'm captivated by what's on the surface. Attractiveness compels me. And isn't it amazing how we attach value to that which is simply more attractive, as though attractiveness actually makes it more valuable. Prettier cars, prettier people, prettier homes, irrespective of the actual worth. Some of you will recognize one of these people. Some of you won't. The gentleman in the picture is Ted Bundy. He's a mass murderer. But he's a good-looking man, isn't he? He doesn't look evil. He doesn't look wretched, miserable, ugly. No, he doesn't. The gal beside him is Valma Beck. She's a murderer, too, of children. In Australia, a notorious murderer of children. They're both attractive people. Attractive doesn't mean good. But we attach that, see? And that's where he is. He's seeing this attractive woman and ignoring the fact that there's a wily heart. And this is the way all sin comes to us. It comes to us with an attraction, but but there's something underneath that, that needs to be dealt with, and we need to watch for it. Verse 10 again, And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Loud and wayward. There's a progression. There's a progression with all sin. It starts in thought and then moves to speech. And this is exactly what her temptation is doing. His temptation is doing. Comes first as a picture of something attractive, and then it gets verbalized. She comes to him loud, speaking it out loud. You know how something is less scary and less forbidden once you say it. Once the words escape your mouth, it's a different deal. Now there's, it, it's gained a certain foothold in the heart and the mind. It's not as bad. I said it and I didn't die. I said it and I'm okay. Lightning didn't strike. And so I've, I, I become more comfortable with it. And that's the, the progression that's happening here. Things said out loud when once only contemplated in the heart gain acceptability. Our lusts want to gain expression for the purpose of legitimization. This happens, it's what our media is filled with. is people wanting to be heard about their lusts and desires. Because the louder I say it, the more acceptable it becomes. That's true of every sin. Every single one. This is the deceptiveness of our own heart. Watch for this in yourself. That thing which you once only contemplated has now moved over to a verbal expression. Maybe just to somebody over a cup of coffee. Maybe to someone just in passing. Maybe in an email or a text. But all of a sudden, the sin is given verbalization and it starts to take on a life of its own. Verse 12, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. 
As I said already, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. When you become preoccupied with your sin, you focus on it, and you'll see that every place you go. Never realizing the danger that that kind of preoccupation leads to. As she reads her phone, and the two in front of her are about to be killed. This is how sin works. And you become so preoccupied with it, every place you go, you see it. You see it legitimized. You see it talked about. You see it indulged in. You see it in others. You see it celebrated. You see whatever. And so we can become railers. Uh, Forgive me. Uh, I know I've I've mentioned this along that line sometimes before. And and, and if this, this is not a political statement. This is a statement of culture. If you listen to Rush Limbaugh rail for three hours every day, you'll rail too. It doesn't matter what he's railing about. It's the permission to rail. And you go looking for it, and it legitimizes your own rage. It legitimizes your own outrage. It legitimizes... And all sin works that way. Solomon is by the power of the Spirit, is so insightful here into things that we just wouldn't think about for ourselves. You can understand why David in Psalm 19 pleads, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I need to think on good things and speak good things. These are powerful inducements. Moves from that, verse 13. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. Once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. And then in verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him, and with a bold face she says to him, boldness enters in now. I could do this. A sneering inwardness of the heart towards sin. Matter of fact, he kissed her and he didn't die. He could, he could move on and, and I'm okay. And if anybody challenges me on my sin, oh, I will rear up and tell them, no, I've got this under control. I'm okay. But sin starts to build this boldness in the heart, this brashness, this in-your-face kind of thing for legitimizing itself. And that progress continues Again, back in Judges 16.20, when Delilah yelled, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, Oh, sneering, bold, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. I can, I can do this and I'll survive and I'll be okay. And this false courage is building up inwardly to move you closer to that spot. Verse 14. It's no big deal. This is acceptable. Everybody does it. Look, look. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. I'm legitimate. This isn't bad. After all, this is acceptable. Others do it, and they're fine. Even other Christians do it, and they get away with it. Even those that are devout and prominent seem to do it okay. 
Why can a man like Anthony Weiner even run for office in the United States? Because people want to know that they too can be slave to their lusts and still occupy a legitimate place. We want it. Mark Sanford, after leaving his wife, after abandoning his office, after running off to Brazil for some other woman, and then coming back and running for office again and getting elected. Why? Because secretly we want them to to be successful, even though they are that corrupt. It, It tells us it's okay. It's no big deal. We'll get over it. The world will get over it. It's just sin. Who cares? I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. I mean, I'm I'm religious. It's within the framework of the church. It's it's okay. And so 15, and, and now I've come out to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. There is this payoff for him at this moment. And that is, and this is so seductive for every one of us, Everyone wants to be desired. That's what she appeals to in this moment. That's what every sin appeals to within us. The need, the, the want to be desired, to be likable, to be found attractive, to be, and somehow this sin is going to help me in that regard. So lying at my job is going to make me more attractive so I get the promotion. Stealing the money is going to let me to buy the things that make me look good and be more attractive in the eyes of those who are around me. Bragging is going to help my, my esteem. A sexual conquest will make me look good in the eyes of certain people. I want that appeal. It's, this is how our hearts work. Now, maybe you're not aware that your heart reasons like this. It does. And the more you're aware of it, I mean, that's what this chapter is so great at. As you start to understand this, you can start to to sense and deal with the motions of sin in your own heart before they actually come to fruition. That's his purpose here. Unpack it so that you can see what's going on. I was going to show you a video of some things done in slow motion, uh, particularly a water balloon being held up and being filmed at uh, 50,000 frames a second and then pricked with a with a pin. And in, in that kind of slow motion, you can all of a sudden see the skin disappear and the water remain completely intact. And then beads come off from that and then slowly begin to disintegrate and fall. Because when, when, when all of the motion is slowed down and you can see it in its constituent parts, then you can start to deal with it. This is what Solomon's doing for his son. If I can slow you down from your temptation long enough to start to get acquainted with the motions of sin in your heart, you'll have a chance at overcoming it. That's why this passage is so powerfully useful for all of us. But, but our sin will argue with us about its benefits. It's, it's going to tell us that there's a benefit to this. There's an upside to this. It's not going to tell us about the downside. And so I've come out to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. And then in verse 16, 
And I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. And I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. It is all pleasantness and enjoyableness. No downside. It's, it's lovely and comfortable and sweet and delightful and enjoyable. And this is what I promise you. And it, it won't hurt. It'll just feel good. It'll be nice. Every sin offers that. Every one. It'll feel good to get revenge. It'll feel good to get that off your chest. It'll, it'll feel good to buy that even though you can't afford it. It'll feel good. Puff yourself up. It'll, it'll feel good. It's going to be pleasant. So she tells him about the pleasantness. Again, all in sensual terms, interesting. And, and I wish we had time to unpack that further. But, but sight with the colored linens and touch and smell and perfume and aloes and cinnamon. This is all the trappings of wealth and, and ease. There's no downside. And then this bold statement in verse 18. So come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. This isn't love by any stretch of the imagination in the scenario. It lacks the exclusivity of love, the commitment of love, the sanctity of love. This is just the outworking of lust, and, and that's the way it is. And, but we want things to be different. Our hearts will take things and switch the perspective on them so that they appear to make sense. Now, you can't produce a cloud with a spray can. But from a certain perspective, it can look like it. And you can't grow in Christ from indulging in any of your sins, though from a certain perspective, at times, it looks like it. But this is how the heart argues. It's deceptive. It's deceitful. It's going to convince us that that we can do magic. And we can't. So it will mischaracterize the sin. It will rename the sin into something that's easier to swallow, easier to deal with. I'm not given to fits of anger. I am prone to righteous indignation. (laughs) Okay. Whatever you say. And then in verse 19, 19 through 20, what's promised at the end here is safety. You see, my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. We won't get caught. And we're only talking one night, but he's going to be gone a long time. He took a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he'll come home. I even know when he's going to come home, so I know we're safe till then. I think I shared the story with you once before about a time when I was a teenager and we had one guy among us who could drive and he decided that it would be good if, uh, if we broke into this private swimming pool club in Brighton and uh, be a fun place to go at, at midnight when nobody was around and it was a heated pool and it was outside and underwater lights and, and after all, all we're going to do is swim, we're not going to do anything and so 
we went out there a couple of times. We did this. We hopped the fence. We jumped in. It was great fun. And, and we didn't get caught. And we knew we wouldn't get caught because nobody's there at midnight out in the middle of, of no man's land. And so then we decided we wanted to do it one more time. And so we were very methodical in choosing how we were going to execute our sin. And our methodology was this. Let's pick a really cold night because nobody's going to be at the swimming pool on a cold night. It was cold. And we got out there and we jumped in the water and, man, that heated pool felt so good and we were having a ball and then six police came out of the bushes and said, guess what, y'all are trespassing and you're going to be arrested for it. And it went from there. But you see, we had convinced ourselves it would be safe under those conditions. And you will convince yourself, your heart will convince you that your sin is safe under certain conditions. Really safe. And it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. This isn't about the, the woman. It's about the heart. And, and for those of you that are worried about sin, him constantly portraying sin as a, as a woman in these opening chapters, next week, wisdom is the woman. <laughs> so it's not a slight on, woman, on women. It has to do with Hebrew verbs and Hebrew nouns. Hebrew nouns have gender, like we call ships, she. Everything in Hebrew has that. Every noun has a male or female and a, a gender to it. And so wisdom and, and temptation are both portrayed as, as she. And so, verse 21, with, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With much seductive speech, your heart persuades you. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And then, the tipping point. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. This is the effect of the progression. It's exactly what we read in James 1. We're tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin has had its work, it brings forth death. And we aren't even perceiving that all the time, this is a trap. We're heading into it. Like an ox to the slaughter, like a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver and and a bird rushes into a snare and he does not know that it will cost him his life. We don't know this is going to cost us what it does. So in verses 24 through 27 then, Solomon says, Son, I, I, let me talk to you. Listen. Just listen to me. Please listen to me. Now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Get this. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray to her paths. Go all the way back to the beginning of this scenario and don't go walking near the house at night. Don't flirt with it at its very inception. For many a victim she has laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. It's destroyed the best of them. Her house is the way to Sheol, the grave, hell. 
going down to the chambers of death. Watch what you let your heart love because the very strongest of Christians have fallen here. It's a path to death and separation from God. I just recently stumbled on a new author who I'm reading. I had never heard of him before. His name is Bishop uh, Lancelot Andrews, a 17th century man, 15th century man, 16th, I'm sorry, I'll get it. Uh, this is how he prayed every Sunday before he preached. And this takes us to a good spot. I conceal nothing. I'm reading from Alexander White, so let me read the whole portion. I conceal nothing, sobbed out Bishop Lancelot Andrews every Lord's Day morning before he could face his congregation and his clergy. I make no excuses. I denounce against myself my sins. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord, and thus and thus have I done. O Lord, I have destroyed myself. And thou art just in all that has come upon me. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I abhor and bruise myself that my penitence, O Lord, Lord, is not deeper. Help thou mine impenitence, and more, and still more, Peace pierce thou, rend and crush my heart. But he doesn't stop there. Magnify thy mercies toward the chief of sinners and say to me, thy sins are forgiven thee. Say, O God, unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Oh, that's good. All of this, as we've covered, is given for two reasons. Let me wrap everything up here. I know we've gone a little long. There's two things I want to just tease out here at the end. First, this is given to us to give us supernatural insight into ourselves so that we can gain the mastery over our sin. This is not recited for Solomon's son or for us in an effort to squash us. It is in an effort to give us tools to walk free in the power of the Spirit. This is, this is given to us not to beat us down, but to lift us up. And we need to understand that. But secondly, it's given to us most especially so that we're thrown back upon the grace of God in Christ and spoiled forever from trusting in ourselves or the supposed goodness of our hearts or our own performance. It's to get us to abandon self-trust in favor of trusting Christ alone. To live trusting Christ as our righteousness at all times and in all situations. Otherwise, if that isn't the case, if we don't do this, we live defeated every time we sin, and maybe you go through this scenario, I know I have at times, and we live by some invented means of getting over our sin, either through if enough time passes, then I can feel okay, or some penitential good work, or waiting for some mysterious new stamp from the Holy Spirit uh, that I've got approval and that now this situation's over and I can go on. Instead of living like that, with that weird up and down, he wants us to walk with a constant and real awareness that we must mistrust our own hearts, but then also walk ever closer and more vitally dependent 
on the imputed righteousness of our Savior and to live joyfully and contented there because He's with you in the battle. Or as we go back to Jeremiah again, so that we know for sure and learn to live in a different place than trusting our own deceitful hearts because we can't even fully understand them, but looking to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You again that it is extraordinary in the way that it deals with our sin and with reality. It doesn't paint a false picture of any kind. It brings us to know truth and truth as You've given it to us in Your Word. Father, I pray that the believer here today will be strengthened and encouraged as they gain some tools to understand the motions of sin in their own heart and and begin to come to new places in victory. And I pray for the one here today especially that is not a believer, that they will understand the deceptiveness of their own heart, their heart which has told them that they are fine as is, and have no need of the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ, of His substitutionary atonement at Calvary, of His forgiveness and life-giving work. I pray that they'll see that that has been a deception that will lead them to death, eternal death. And instead, we'll come to see the grace of Christ today in these words, and we ask it in His name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.